Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, such as the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn of and reflect on the history of science and medicine as tools of oppression. The exploitation of medical science has led to biased perceptions and barriers to healthcare against Indigenous peoples that persist to this day. One of the most revolutionary inventions in history was Johannes Gutenberg's printing press. In fact, English intellectual Francis Bacon who is known for popularizing the scientific method, famously wrote that the three inventions that forever changed the world were gunpowder, the nautical compass, and the printing press. Books and libraries opened science for citizens outside of the elite intellectual circle. And now, with the advent of computers and digitalization of data and information, we continue to see science become more accessible. On this episode, we talk about open science, my name is Sumi. And my name is Zainab. Welcome to episode 105 of Raw Talk Podcast. We first spoke with Dr. Leslie Chan, an associate professor in the Department of Global Development Studies at the University of Toronto. Dr. Chan is also the director of the Knowledge Equity Lab and was one of the original signatories of the Budapest Open Access Initiative, a historical and defining event of the open access movement. This initiative offered the first definition of open access and statements of principle, strategy, and commitment to make research available to all. Dr. Chan, let's start at the very beginning. What is open access? There are many definitions, not surprisingly. And so I think at the simplest level, open access is about free and unrestrained access to scholarly information. And by scholarly information, we generally refer to as peer review articles. But it it could include books. Increasingly, it's also including monographs and other type of scholarly publications comes out in different formats, which is actually part of the broader definition of open science as well. But fundamentally, this is about having no price and permission barriers to the readers so that if anyone has access to the internet, they should be able to download these, these materials, read them, share them offline as well as online. We also asked Dr. Brian Bagri for his definition of open science. Dr. Bagri is a professor at the Institute for History and Philosophy of Science and Technology and is cross-appointed to the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. Open access science, I mean, the idea of it, the theory of it is that it's freely available research with no restrictions on the use of research. But in practice, it's really the, I think, the change of, of one business model to another model from what used to be a prescription business to open access. So, I mean, the main difference is open access journals don't require the reader to pay for the journal's contents, um, but rely instead on author fees and public funding, subsidies, sponsorship. Other people have compared the the movement from kind of prescription-based journals and publications 
to open access. They've kind of compared it to what happened in the music business, moving from record labels to Spotify and Apple Music. Now that we have a better idea of what open science entails, we wanted to further understand its role in the modern-day scientific community. We spoke to Dr. Anthony Bonato about his experience with open science as he ran an open access journal himself for some time. Dr. Bonato is a mathematician and has been a professor at Ryerson University for over 20 years. Dr. Bonato, how has the perception of open science changed over the years in the academic world? I've heard from more junior colleagues that some grant committees and some promotion committees are not as fond of open access. They're just not sure about the quality. And I think that's changing. I think there are some very, very high quality journals right now that are going open access. So I've sort of done it all. I've, when I was a PhD student in the 90s, I mean, we didn't really have, you know, like open access. There was just the beginning of the internet. But now there's, you know, I wouldn't say the, the majority. In fact, a slim minority of, of journals now are going open access. I can tell you about two of them in particular. Recently in mathematics, there's, there's a journal called uh, the Journal of Combinatorial Theory Series A and another one called the Journal of Algebraic Combinatorics. Uh, they're pretty well regarded. And recently, the entire editorial board resigned in both cases, in part because they just want to embrace open access. It's evident that the importance of open science is being increasingly recognized in the scientific community. Dr. Bakery introduces the argument of how open access can be used to achieve the ultimate goal of science, the pursuit of truth. Dr. Bakery, can you expand on the benefits and limitations of open science? Open access is um, a way to kind of democratize uh, knowledge. It's kind of, you know, philosophers call it a reciprocity argument. You know, when you go beyond prescription schemes associated with paywalls, it, it means in theory, that a cancer patient can access and read research on their conditions. I mean, this this research is taxpayer-funded, et cetera, but it is open to them as patients. And that's an interesting argument. And, and from the point of view of a clinician, maybe kind of worrisome with patients engaged in a lot of self-diagnosis, but that's a topic for another conversation. But it's just basically an argument about the social responsibility of researchers that researchers should and have an obligation to make their research available to everyone. And it's kind of built on this idea that if science is anything, it has to be universal, which means that we can all have kind of equal access to knowledge. And uh, some people think that it's overstated, that, you know, most of these papers that are published are really inaccessible to people without the right kind of training and the right kind of education. Even the summaries can be um, easily misunderstood. It kind of overlooks the real expertise that's involved, not just in creating these studies, but in understanding these studies and making decisions, whether they're policy-based decisions or treatment decisions, making decisions in a responsible and fully informed way. It's a, you know, a long-standing theme going back to Isaac Newton that science is on the side of democracy and freedom, and it's going to give us a kind of an impartial way to get to the truth. Another argument that is kind of an empirical claim that the sharing of data is, is it's argued, will, will lead to more rapid scientific growth progress. It'll lead to a reduction in unnecessary duplication of research effort. 
um, say scholars who don't have the same sort of privilege we might have here in Toronto or in California, if there's a barrier to them, they can't do research that they could be engaged in. All of this slows down a desired movement forward in science and research. But the thing is, it's an empirical claim. I mean, there may be good reasons for believing that open access will be conducive to progress, but I'm close enough to basic science to know that this shouldn't be taken for granted, right? Between practitioners, um, well, scientists, and especially in medicine, there's much to be said for scientific etiquette, right? I and mean, if you want to have sustainable scientific collaboration, this takes much more than just throwing information into the wind. Um, so, you know, a, as an argument, we need to look more closely at this. The open access has been around for quite a while. I looked around to see what kind of studies are available, and I didn't see anything that really kind of answered this question. There's nothing like an evidence-based approach to this question. So, I think it's a genuinely open question whether it facilitates progress. If you want to have sustainable kind of research progresses, sustainable, high-quality research, you can't have a kind of a blanket imposition of a universal open access model. You need to think these things through and work these things through with care. Dr. Bagri emphasizes the empirical nature of the claim that open science will lead to increased collaboration in scientific progress. For most, scientific progress is a competition, publish or perish. This is the majority of current research culture, to be number one. We asked Dr. Chan how open access may influence competition. I'm going to quote this article from Twitter that you had shared. So it says... And I quote, because science traditionally has rewarded only scientists who are the first to discover ideas and publish findings, there is resistance to move from closed practices that protect the secrecy of ideas to a paradigm that claims that openness and sharing will be rewarded, end quote. So competition fuels innovation. Is it possible that increased openness and sharing and consequently reduced competition could slow that progress of innovation? What are your thoughts on that? The articles that you referred to is uh, an article authored by a, a number of scholars with the intent of reminding us that, again, the benefits of open science are not equitably distributed, and yet also not all scientists can take part in this so-called open science arena. And so it's important to remember that there are still a lot of structural issues that need to be addressed. And one of the structural issues that kind of relate to your question about innovation and competition is this long-held belief that somehow competition is good. Uh, it generates innovations, generate better science and so forth. Uh, and I would go as far as to say it's a myth. It's a, it's a myth that we perpetuate in, again, the elite system because those who have a lot of resources, of course, they are able to compete. And yet a lot of people are left out of these competitions simply because they just don't have the infrastructures and the, the resources to take part in these so-called competition. And so what we have in these science system is always the rich get richer, uh, the poor get poorer, right? So we amplify those who already have resources 
versus those continue to suffer from the lack of resources and access to participation. And so this notion of competition has to be, again, change into better understanding of collaboration and cooperation. So instead of thinking about competition, I think open science is very much about thinking about collaboration. How can we work across discipline? How can we work across silos, ways of thinking, so that we can enrich each other ways of understanding the world and ways of doing science? So cooperation over competition. A good example of the coexisting positive and negative repercussions of open access in science is unfolding now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Bagri, could you tell us a bit more about how open access, a more transparent approach to science, has played out throughout this pandemic, both locally and globally? There are a lot of good things happened during the pandemic and include in, in terms of understanding how COVID-19 attacks us, in terms of the really quick publication of the full genome sequence for COVID-19. There have been some, move, there have was movement forward in terms of diagnostic tests, preprint articles. Some of them were very helpful, some of them uh, less so. I think these are all important points. I mean, everything was accelerating very quickly. I was looking today to how many articles were published on COVID in the last 22 months or whatever, and it was like 61,000 or something like that. It's just a, a fantastic number. But, you know, at the same time, I think we be, need to be mindful that, you know, if we kind of take the lid off of peer review, the peer review process and, you know, kind of the traditional standards of scholarly publication and openly kind of remove this idea that preprints are something to be kind of avoided. I mean, welcome sort of officially laid out a principle which said we need to encourage preprints. Well, then there's there's grounds for concern. I mean, right in the beginning of the, I mean, one of the WHO's first announcements was based on a study done at Wuhan and in, of something like 37,000 people that had been, I mean, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, but it was just a study, contact tracing study. And, you know, at, at the end of it, the conclusion was drawn that the, the route of transmission was primarily fomites, surfaces, and that aerosol droplets were in, implicated as well, but not to the same degree as direct contact. And, you know, it, that is really a fantastic claim. Like, if you just think in terms of plausibility, because... You know, we knew a great deal about coronaviruses, especially those of us who were here in Toronto in 2003. It was pretty firmly established that SARS was airborne, but suddenly coronavirus comes upon us and we're told emphatically, and it was said so by the World Health Organization, that it's not airborne. So that, that whole line of thought just in researching, you know, the routes of transmission for this virus, knowing full well that measles, TB, and a host of other viruses are airborne, that was just shut down at the beginning. And for months, we had uh, gloves, and we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on hand sanitizers. And for months, we were told pretty emphatically that face coverings, I prefer that to mask, 
confer no benefit over and above social distancing. So it was just, you know, stay away from people, avoid the virus, right? Avoid infection. The whole strategy was based on um, avoidance. And it really took a long time for the World Health Organization and Canada's closely allied with the World Health Organization to kind of draw back on that and say, well, you know, like by June and July in 2020, well, you know, maybe we should think about another layer of protection in terms of uh, face masks. I think the public would have felt a little bit more confident recognizing that. The back and forth and messaging, the disagreement between levels of government, not only within this country, but from country to country. I mean, that was really disconcerting for people. So what does this have to do with open access? Well, you know, a lot of stuff was published without any kind of review and incentives were put in place by the welcome and others to publish without any kind of review, even your own review, just send it in. And, you know, we're all incentivized in academia to publish. It's really important. It affects our life. It affects our salary. It affects our esteem, our identities. And it was so open, I think, that, and in fact, it did much damage. So we need to rethink some of this stuff. Despite some drawbacks, open access can be beneficial for global problems like climate change or, as we just mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Chan, you served as advisor to many organizations, one of them being the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. So UNESCO put out their first international framework, the UNESCO Recommendation on Open Science, to make science more equitable and inclusive. Can you tell us more about this and what do you hope will come from it? So I'm glad you mentioned the the UNESCO Open Science Recommendations, which was unanimously approved by all UNESCO member states, 193 member states uh, from across the world uh, that endorse this set of recommendations. So it is an important uh, milestone. And the reason it's important, too, is because UNESCO's mandate is to ensure, you know, it's a science and cultural organization that these important uh, knowledge of humanities are preserved, disseminated, and more, more importantly, equitably distributed and shared around the world so that the world is not dominated by one set of ideas, one set of culture, one set of ideologies, and one set of media. Right? So the idea, well, the core mission of UNESCO is to ensure the diversity of voices from around the world are, are being heard, and that's the function of, of UNESCO. And so the science recommendation, open science recommendation, really built on that mandate. That is, you know, how do we ensure that all the member countries and communities around the world can take part in these changes in the way we do and share sciences so that these practices are not, again, just confined to those privileged institutions and actors. And if there are indeed many benefits to open science, how can we ensure that these benefits are also equitably shared so that, again, not only a certain segment of the population continue to benefit and many people continue to suffer from the lack of those access uh, to those benefits of science. So this is why these set of recommendations are very important. Although these recommendations are important, it's not always fairly accessible. Dr. Chan explains. I mean, what we're observing with the pandemic 
On the one hand, we tend to celebrate how open science contributed to the fast discovery, understanding of the virus, its genetics, and, and then, of course, the vaccine development and so forth as sort of success of open science. On the other hand, we also are struck by the extreme uh, vaccine inequities that we're seeing. So that in the rich worlds, many of us have several doses and where in many parts of the world, people still are not even vaccinated with one dose. So this extreme inequity is a strong reminder that the benefits of science are very, very unequally distributed. So there are lots of work to be done. And a lot of those work has to do with existing infrastructure. And so the pandemic and the vaccine inequity remind us that the issue of access is important, right? like access to the vaccine. But if you don't have the infrastructures and you don't have the capacity, but more importantly, if you don't have a system of knowledge production and sharing that allow other players, countries, communities to be self-sufficient, then we will continue to have this world of very highly unequal players, those that have, that set the rules and those who do not have and have to be dependent on those power centers uh, for their existence. So in terms of, you know, the, the benefit of open science, so that the rights of everybody to the benefits of the science, but also to take part in their own development of their knowledge system so that they could have the strong infrastructure to ensure their health and well-being. The process of publishing an open access paper requires a couple of extra steps and dollars. In a TED Talk, astrophysicist Dr. Rachel Ainsworth explained that scholarly articles do not pay for their content nor its review. It gets sent to editors, who then send it to other experts who review the scientific work on a voluntary and anonymous basis, a process known as peer review. It gets locked behind a paywall and sold back to those who submitted it in the first place. If a researcher wants their article to be made available online, open access, through the journal upon publication, they have to pay an additional fee. Dr. Will Flannery, also known as Dr. Glaukenflecken on TikTok and Twitter, described the reality of publishing as an academic perfectly in this sketch. Hey man, how's it going? Oh great, I just had a paper published. Dude, congrats, that's awesome. It was in a pretty prestigious journal too. Oh wow, they probably pay you pretty well for that. Yeah. Wait, what? The, the journal, they published your paper. They must have paid you pretty well for it, right? Oh, well, no, the, the journal doesn't pay you any money. Yeah, but they're, they're using your paper. Yeah, so? Well, like if you spent years writing a book, you, you sell the book, you, you get money for it. Oh, well, I do get paid to do the research. You know, I get grant funding. Oh, so the journal that publishes your paper, they give you grant money to actually do the research. Uh, no, the grant money comes from the government. So the journal doesn't pay for the research or the content that they're publishing. Are they some kind of nonprofit? Oh, no. The largest academic publishing companies make like $20 billion a year. Really? Yeah, their profit margins are like 40%, which is higher than Google. <laughs> So why don't they pay you to publish your paper? Well, I get something much more valuable than money. What? Prestige. Well, why can't you have both? 
Should we, as a scientific community, start prioritizing open access in our current times? In theory, yes. In, in practice, there's a lot of difficult questions about the, the costs that go with uh, open access. I mean, California opted out of a, a big deal with Elsevier. Xavier, I think, has 3,650 journals, 500 of which are open access. And the state of California, which is, is huge in the medicine front, I think 18% of global research comes out of California universities. They just said no to this deal. So, And if you were to talk to the head librarians at the University of Toronto who have to negotiate these contracts with publishing companies like Wiley and Xavier, they might make the same kind of argument that Look, I mean, the appeal is that it's it's free and open and accessible to everybody, but there is a real deep cost to us. A open access kind of works from the point of view of administrators and libraries in much the same way that bundled TV programming does. So, you know, you subscribe to Rogers or you subscribe to Bell, Fibe, you get packages. You can't pick out one channel or two channel or three channels. So... You might get a package that's got 1,100 journals and maybe six or 700 of those journals. Nobody reads a single paper in them. So there's lots of discussions about, and this isn't my area of research, but I've been in attendance to some of these meetings about the value of this kind of transition. What's the process like to publish in open access journals? Yes, it's, it's pretty much the same as it is in a non-OA um, open access journal. You submit, there are reviews, and there's some post-processing that goes on once the paper, if the paper is accepted. For non-open access journals, typically you sign away copyright. Well, I think in most cases for OA, that's that's more rare. Another thing that's emerging now, becoming more popular, is to make open access journals, which, which are called archive overlay. So in this setting, the paper resides on archive, and you can update it there after referee reports and so on come in. But the journal just basically is a portal which will link to archive that way. So that's a, it's a new model, and I, the archive overlay journals that I'm aware of, they, they do it very well. Earlier, Dr. Bonato, you explained that open access means no paywalls. You also called it the biggest scam in history. Care to explain that tweet? <laughs> maybe a bit provoc maybe a bit provocatively, yeah. Yeah, so that day was an interesting day for me. I had a paper um accepted and it was sort of in post-processing where you do transfer of copyright to the journal. So you fill out various forms online, and I'm sure many academics know about this. You reach a page that says you too can make your paper open access for the fee of three thousand US dollars. And the funny thing about that, in case you're not familiar, is most mathematicians, and I'm sure it's true in STEM more generally post their papers free, like freely accessible on a place called archive. I think there's like a bio archive or various archives within different disciplines in STEM, but in math and physics and computer science, it's archive. So there's a free version of the paper there. And also I keep a free version on my website. So there's, it was just sort of a strange dichotomy. You have like, you know, a request for $3,000 to make your paper open access. Well, it's, it's freely available anyway. Open access is pricey which makes it, ironically, not always accessible. Echoing Dr. Bonato's sentiments, Dr. Baygree brings attention to the financial and political underpinnings of the open science infrastructure. Uh, one of my grad students who got a fantastic acceptance for a paper with a, a frontline journal 
wanted money for open access and you know the the amount of money you have to pay to publish through um, open access it can range from $500 if you go into European the journal of European urology it's $5,000 I mean if you're part of a research team in a faculty of medicine and the leader of that team is well funded maybe that can be covered by that but that that really eliminates almost everybody in humanities uh, it eliminates a lot of people in the social sciences. So we're trying to move towards a more kind of inclusive conversation where we're speaking across these barriers. So people in STEM uh, can speak with the social scientists and humanists so we don't forget about things like mental health and uh, other sources of social and developmental inequity. But at the end, open access is just a different payer system. Right. And, you know, people have this idea that open access journals are free. They're not. It's just that all the money is moved to the front. And that kind of privileges a group who are well funded. Yes, it does open up readership. It also opens up the door to people reading whatever they want into these articles and quoting them and citing them and uh, turning them into misinformation. But the people who are paying for this are a lot of them are here and at the University of Toronto because publishing in open access journals is very expensive. I mean, Wiley and Azelvier, their business is shifting completely to an open access model uh, from the old uh, subscription model because they are business. Their end game is monopolizing knowledge as much as possible. That's what they want to do. And, you know, that's the nature of business. So I'm, I'm not raging about that, but, you know, people should be aware that there are gains and losses with these systems. Dr. Bonato is an outspoken advocate of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Global and cross-cultural perspectives are critical to the advancement of research in all fields. Well, I think equity, diversity, and inclusion means a lot of things, but one important aspect of it is access and questioning who has access and who doesn't. And of course, open access is, you know, fully accessible to everybody. So it's, in my opinion, instantly EDI friendly because it, it sort of levels the, the playing field for people. I also really resonate with the idea that there are people from smaller institutions who are really excellent researchers who can access these papers without, you know, having to hunt down these expensive subscriptions or their library having to join, you know, possibly consortia, which is out of their budget. So I think it just, in a, in a simple way, it just sort of levels the playing field for everyone. Echoing this, Dr. Chan told us earlier that the race to discovery is not a fair one, especially when it comes to knowledge dissemination in developing countries. Dr. Chan is also the director of BioLine International, a nonprofit scholarly publishing cooperative committed to providing open access to quality research journals published in developing countries. Their goal is to reduce the South to North knowledge gap to have a better global understanding of health, biodiversity, the environment, conservation, and international development. Dr. Chan, can you tell our listeners more about the organization? How do you carry out your mission? So BioLine International was actually started by two of my dear colleagues, Barbara Kursop, who's 93 this year, another colleague, uh, Vandele Canos, and actually a whole team uh, of our colleagues in Brazil in a tropical biodiversity research center in Campinas, Brazil. And the BioLine server has actually been supported by the PREA group in, in Campinas for the last 
Well, we started in 1993, so it's been many, many years that they have been supporting this this server that allow us to put open access journals for everyone to access. And the journals that we make available are all journals from various global South countries, many from African countries and India, South Asia, where, where we do have a lot of important science being done, but a lot of these science are not accessible even through open access in the in the global north because of the long again systemic prejudice against knowledge from other part of the world so that okay if it's not doesn't have this imprint from this publishers from this country we automatically put them in the second tiers or even worse right we dismiss knowledge coming from other part of the world thinking that they're not as vigorous, as important, and so forth. But if you look at many of these journal partners that we work with, the African Health Sciences, which is now in its third decade, and the African Journal of Food, Nutrition, and Development, also in the third decade, African Crop Sciences Journals, African Journal of Reproductive Health. These are very, very important local communities that, number one, publish research that are very, very important for local relevance on nutrition and crops and in, in women's health, in public health and so forth. And these knowledge, unfortunately, are not easily published in Global North or International Journal because a lot of these journals don't see them as interesting enough for their readers. But fortunately, there are many dedicators uh, editors uh, and, and writers and reviewers with these different journals to make sure that the local research and the local researchers build a capacity to share uh, in important issues that affects them uh, very directly, right? And so they're able to sustain these journals through different means and share them through open access. And over the years, we've learned about many of their challenges that they continue to, to, to face in terms of resources, in terms of biases against global self-knowledge. But slowly, we're understanding how important local knowledge systems are and how much we are in need of them, especially when we come to understanding about global health and health equity issues. Because without these information, we just have very incomplete pictures of health. So we can't use the term global, really unless we have all these different information and knowledge about local events and and what's going on. Okay, thank you. So you definitely touched on my next question, which was, why is it important for us to care about that research in developing countries? You mentioned local sharing, but how does Canada or the U.S. get involved? We tend to have this attitude that we're scientific powerhouse and we have lots of knowledge to give to others, to help them build their capacity and so forth. Where in fact, the opposite is often the case that a lot of what, you know, there's a lot that we don't know that we could learn from our colleagues, from our fellow researchers in other parts of the world about sustainable livelihood, about sustainable environmental practices, about uh, different ways of uh, healthy eatings and crops and, you know, low energy way of living. And of course, way to deal with public health issues through community support and long traditions of knowledge built over the centuries, right? So one of the things about uh, about open science and it's being increasingly recognized is that when we think about 
science, we shouldn't just think about sort of a certain form of Western science built on a certain kind of empirical foundations. There are lots of different ways of doing sciences. And so that uh, we need to be open about how different people understand their world and how they share the knowledge and how they preserve the knowledge and how we can learn from each other and, and reach others' understanding of the challenges we all face. So when you talk about climate change and all these infectious diseases and so forth, these are not things that affect one population. We know too well now, right? Everybody's connected in radically interconnected ways. And so it is all the more important that we need to open up our mind in terms of the knowledge system that could benefit us all. Diverse knowledge enables progress. Dr. Chan explains that we still have much to learn. Open science is about opening science to more participants, to more forms of knowledge, to more voices. And so to the so-called general citizens, I would say that we are all knowledge holders of one form or another. If I need to get some plumbing done, you know, I know how knowledgeable those plumbers are and, you know, how much they know. And if I need to consult other different people, I know their knowledge is really being passed on and being well tested. So, so all around us, there are really knowledge holders. And this is really a strong reminder, too, And when we talk about open science, about the diversity of knowledge around the world, one of the things we keep forgetting is how much indigenous knowledge systems have been you know, around and important for so long. And there's much we can learn from our indigenous communities, colleagues and students about their way of relating to the world. The, the, our, our relationship with the world through Western science has been a problematic one. You know, we created a lot of the current problem because of our arrogance about how we can dominate over nature and alter nature to our benefit. But now we're seeing all these very, very detrimental consequences. But indigenous knowledge system have always reminded us about how we have to care for the earth. You know, it's the earth that gives us everything. And when you destroy the earth, we destroyed ourselves. That's plain and simple. And so how do we better understand our relationship as a caretaker of the world? What kind of caretaking knowledge do we need to learn? And all these things, uh, things that we need to think about in our science, in our teaching, in our interaction with each other. And so I think these are the kind of things that I would like to all of us to think about, citizens of all sorts, and to think, okay, how can... How can our knowledge system be brought into these conversations? What should students know about open science as they get more involved in the world of academia? I would say to students, I think this is a very important area to think about because, again, this is not something that is talked about much in the curriculum. Again, I think our traditional science courses still teach in a pretty same way about how science is done and share and so forth. And I think these kind of principles about open science and the diversity of knowledge system and their importance in doing science should be part of the curriculum. And some of my colleagues are starting to do that more, but students certainly have the means to seek out these kind of resources and to learn about where they can get in touch with people, learn more about how that's relevant to their own way of knowing, and also how their own history and culture could be relevant to their own knowledge career, if you will. 
As you heard from our esteemed guests and team members on this episode, open access is an imperfect but important way forward in academia to accelerate dissemination of knowledge. If you want to learn more about open access in academia, check out the links and references in our show notes. You can also check out Dr. Chan's podcast with his Knowledge Lab team called Unsettling Knowledge Inequities. As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Dr. Leslie Chan, Dr. Anthony Bonato, and Dr. Brian Bakery. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Zainab, and Sumi. Seth, Larkin, Priska, and Dennis helped out with episode content and interviews. Helen was our audio engineer, and Jesse was our executive producer. Make sure to stay tuned for our next episode on love and relationships. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars.